0: All right, so this this is a family of a young man from Australia uh, who won the gold medal in the 100 free uh, in swimming. And I just thought it was neat to see the reaction of a family member because I never really thought about it. Um, obviously, you can look at me and know that none of my family is Olympians. Uh, so I've never gotten to feel it myself. So I've always wondered, what does it feel like, uh, especially for those who are not in Brazil to see their family members compete for those who are just sitting at home like me, watching their family members compete in the Olympics. Uh, But what a wonderful feeling it is to be part of a team. I can't imagine what it feels like for these athletes to feel like no one in their country can do what they do. The reason they're over in Rio is because they are the best in their country, at what they do. Their country needs them to go out and compete. It's an awesome feeling to feel needed. That's why many people are part of teams. It's a basic human feeling to want to be needed. So this morning, I want to answer this question. Does God need you? And maybe you've You've pondered this question in the past. Does God really need me? And this morning, we're going to try to answer that question. Before we answer the question, though, I want us to learn a little bit about God Himself. First of all, God is big. God is really big. He's not just kind of big. He's massive. It's hard for us as humans, with our human minds, to understand How large God is. But not only is God big, but God is extremely powerful. I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. To Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. God's Word describes the world as being without form and void. And listen, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now that sounds like a pretty scary place to me. As he goes on to describe the Spirit hovering over the waters. But this verse sets up one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture in verse 3. Just look at it. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In just four simple words, let there be light. God brought light into the world. Thomas Edison worked to invent the light bulb. And he was not the only one who was working to try to invent something, uh, to invent something that would bring light uh, into homes. But Thomas Edison was looked at as a failure as he tried many, many times before he finally got it right. And here's a quote that he said. I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that won't work. I just thought it was so cool to stop and think that It was that difficult for humans to invent something that would bring light to one single room. And God brought light to the world in four simple words. What an incredible thought that is of how powerful God is, how big God is. So let's move on. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. There's been a picture circulating on the internet lately of a young man named Omran. And I've got this picture up here. It's kind of graphic. It's very heartbreaking. But this is a very real picture of a five-year-old boy named Omran in Syria. This little boy um, was with his family in the comfort of his own home when an airstrike came down and struck his home. And this picture was taking, taken inside of an ambulance just moments after rescuers pulled him out of the rubble of his own home. As you look at this photo, I mean, it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking and shocking. You know, five-year-olds are supposed to be running around, playing outside, laughing, having a good time. And here's this young man. He looks shell-shocked. He looks just terrible. But probably worst of all, he looks alone. It is a terrible feeling to feel alone. Nobody wants to be alone. The great thing to think about is that with God, whenever you have this feeling, Because it's going to come over you at some point in your life. You're going to feel alone. But what's great to stop and think about is that whenever that feeling comes over you, it's not true. Because God is everywhere. I want to look at a couple of verses. Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity Whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57:15. God is present at all times. Knowing this presence of God presence of God is a comforting thing when we come to a time in our life where we feel very alone. Daniel survived an entire night in the den of lions because God was with him. With all the Israelites in fear, David was able to face Goliath. Not only did he face Goliath, but he faced Goliath with confidence when he went to him and said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of a bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He responded this way because he could feel the presence of God over him. Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians from prison. I imagine that's a very lonely place. But when he wrote this letter, one of the verses he wrote in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in your brightest moments. And in your toughest times, when you feel most alone, God is there. So God is big, and God is everywhere. And now I want to look at one more thing about God. God knows everything. First John 3.20 says this, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Not only does God been with you through every tough time that you've ever dealt with, through every good time that you've ever been through. But he also understood how you felt. And he knew what you were thinking when you were going through it. Sometimes we think it would be awesome just to know exactly what people are thinking. Wouldn't you just love to know what someone really thinks when they say the words, I don't care. Wouldn't you love to know what they really meant? Because usually it seems like they don't truly mean they don't care. It would be awesome to be able to know exactly what they're thinking. Exactly what they're feeling. To be able to understand better. Matthew ten twenty nine through 30 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Then the psalmist says in Psalm one thirty nine, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows exactly how many hairs are on your head. He knows every word that you have said, every word that you have thought, and every word that you are going to say. God knows which direction you're going to take with your life. He knows every act of service you will make. And he knows every act of service that you will not make. He knows every mistake that you will make. Solomon, known as one of the wisest men in the Bible, he says this. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Jesus, while he was on earth, he demonstrates that God knows everything. When he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he knows something about this woman before he ever met her. In John chapter 11, he tells his disciples that Lazarus has died, even though they weren't even close to where Lazarus was at. Jesus demonstrated that God knows everything. So based on all the things we've looked at already, does the all-powerful, all-knowing God, who is present everywhere we go, everywhere in the world, does He need us? No. God does not need you. But, God wants you. God wants you. Although God would be perfectly fine without us, He wants us. He's still chosen you to be part of His kingdom. And He chooses to be with you in good and bad times, when you reject Him and when you're on fire for Him. He still has a place prepared for you when you leave this earth, when this life is done. What a beautiful thought. God wants me and God wants you. Despite every bad thought we've ever had and every bad choice we've ever made, we still get John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son to die for you. Let's stop and take a look at some of Jesus' closest friends. Let's look at Peter. Peter seems to be the leader amongst Jesus's closest friends. He had the opportunity to be with Jesus in some of his most incredible moments. And some of Jesus's toughest times. I relate to Peter because he's the guy that can't keep his mouth shut. And that's me. Peter had enough courage that in Matthew chapter 16 verse 22, he's described as rebuking Jesus himself. And in verse 23, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That's Peter. Peter often gets criticized because he lost faith and began to sink after he stepped out of the boat. But let's stop and remember, he's the only one that stepped out of the boat. Peter's the only one that had courage to step out of the boat. But despite his courage, Jesus still looked at him in in this situation in Matthew 14, 31 and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter sometimes struggled to keep himself under control. When he was in the garden with Jesus, John 18, 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus came to bring a message of peace and love. Yet here's one of his closest friends who loses sight of that. Who loses sight of what Jesus's mission was. God didn't need Peter. God didn't need someone who loses sight of his mission. God could have used someone who didn't have all these shortcomings. But God saw Peter's potential. God saw how this courage and his passion could be used to move God's kingdom forward. And Peter's the apostle that eventually stood before thousands on Pentecost and preached the first gospel sermon. Let's go to Matthew Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We're going to look at Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. The first time we're ever introduced to this character, Matthew, in a book that he himself authored, he's at a shocking place, a tax booth. Now, this tells us that Matthew, his occupation is a tax collector, And this is one of the last titles that we ever would have expected to to see from one of Jesus' closest friends, especially the people of that time. Tax collectors were some of the most hated, despised men in all of Jewish society. They would go and collect the required amount of taxes, but then collect a little bit of extra just to keep in their own pockets. Sounds like stealing to me. Luke refers to him as Levi, and we learn a little bit more about him. Immediately after his calling, we find in Luke 5 that he hosted a great feast. Luke 5, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of who? Tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Matthew wanted to host a great feast for Jesus, and he invited all his closest friends, which were who? Other bad guys. Other bad guys. From what we read, it seems like Matthew didn't have any good friends. He associated himself with people who everyone else looked down upon. People looked down on people like Matthew. Jesus knew before he ever looked at Matthew and said, follow me, that he had taken advantage of his fellow men. That he had gone into the homes of the people around him and taken advantage of him But Jesus still looked at him and said, follow me. God didn't need a man like Matthew, but he used him to do some incredible things. Finally, I want to look at Paul. The first time we find Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, we see him approving of the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where in verse 1 of chapter 8 it says, Saul approved of his execution." Again, in Acts 9, we read verse 1, and Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. God knew the kind of man that Saul was. And Jesus called a man named Ananias to go and teach Saul about the mission that God had planned for him. Ananias responded in verse 13, showing us just how bad this man was. Saying, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. The people around him saw, saw the same hate, the same exact way we would have, as dangerous as a violent murderer. But Jesus sees things differently than we do. Jesus doesn't see people the same way we do. He saw a man with great struggles, but he saw a man with great passion. He saw the type of passion that he could do something special with. That he could bring people into his kingdom with this type of passion. Now look at Acts chapter 9 verse 15. Jesus spoke to Ananias saying, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, for the sake of my name. God didn't need Peter. God didn't need Matthew. God didn't need Paul. But God used every one of them. God used them as a chosen instrument to carry His name and His love to the people around the world. So My message to you this morning is God doesn't need you, but God wants you. God wants you more than anything. He has a purpose for you. God knows exactly every thought and every struggle. That's kind of scary. Every thought and every struggle you've ever had, every sin you've ever committed, but still, He sees you as a chosen instrument of His. As an instrument to carry the love and grace that He has for His people to the people around Him, around you. To carry the message of the gospel to the people around you. This morning, I'm challenging you to put aside whatever it is that's holding you back from being God's chosen instrument and live your life with purpose. Allow God to use your talents to serve and love the people around you. God doesn't need you, but God wants you. Make that happen today as we stand and sing.